Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 285. What you do for others lasts longer, stays stronger than anything you'll ever do for yourself. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am revved up and so excited today to introduce a very special guest. Louise, know it. Louise, are you buckled up and ready for a fun rise? I was born that way with Nomex in my diapers. (laughs) Now that's a first. I love it. Louise Noet is a storyteller known for taking complicated subjects and making them entertaining and educational. She founded Land Speed Productions in 1984, where she provides film and TV consulting, photography, writing, graphic design, and a whole lot more. Her award-winning works have been published around the world. Dubbed Land Speed Louise, she concentrates on land speed racing and people who do extraordinary feats by designing, building, and driving fast cars, trucks, and motorcycles. She's one of the few women journalists in the automotive field who's also comfortable and competent behind the wheel. So Louise, I've told our listeners just a little bit about you. Would you take a moment and share some more about your career and your passion for automobiles? Yeah, well, I came at automotive journalism a lot different than most people. I don't have any training for this. I'm a kid from the south side of Chicago who essentially took my artistic skills, again, not taught, God-given, and uh, would letter and do pinstriping and gold leaf work on the local street king cars. And because we didn't have any money, I used that as a springboard to say, okay, I'll put that on your car. You let me drive this car for X number of days or hours. And they had to teach me how to drive it. And I didn't want to be their girlfriend. I just wanted to drive their car. So over the course of the years, I learned how to drive Uh, every muscle car, or at least if you would call it old school muscle car. And in the process of doing that artwork, I met some of the racers, which was fun. I used to do a lot of uh, fix them up. They'd take them out for Wednesday or Thursday night, blow them up, and when we'd have to fix them for Saturday, Sunday uh, eliminations. And then I met my first jet car. That was the end of Pistons for me. (laughs) I just, oh my gosh. What an incredible, beautiful, refined engine. And, you know, and that did not break after every run. Long story short, I started to race those uh, for a number of years across the United States. And then some guy from one of the magazines wanted to do a story. And he said, you should write them. You know all about this. We don't know anything about this. I chased him away because I was packing the parachute and he was pestering me. (laughs) Uh, But they persisted. And uh, eventually I wrote a story called Fire for Hire, which ended up being published in a popular hot rodding magazine, which I not only shot the photos for, wrote the story, but I also illustrated the inside of a jet engine at that time for the story. And that was the beginning of my journalistic career. And that was 19- February 1980 was the first time I was published. And I will tell you that my English teachers in grammar and high school would be astonished to know that the Noeth kid is a writer making her money with English. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what a fantastic background, man. You are my kind of gal. 
racing vehicles like that, oh my gosh, I think we're going to have some fun today for sure. As we continue on your journey, I always like to start by asking my guest for a success quote, something that has been inspirational for you, part of forming your life, your success. It's a great way to get the wheels turning here on Cars, yeah? So Louise, take the wheel. Because I'm a gal who chose to be in a male-dominated profession, it wasn't just good enough to be good enough, you had to be better. So after a while, you, you get to a point where I finally just said to one guy that just made me madder than hell because, oh, don't do that, it's dangerous, or don't go there. And I turned around and put my hands on my hips and said, don't judge my abilities by your limitations. Ooh. And, and I want that on my tombstone. <laughs> well, I can only imagine the many ways you've incorporated that great quote into your life and your career, but can you share a little bit more with us about that? I think it's because when I grew up, I didn't come out of a household that said, now, dear, you have to go do this and wear your hat and gloves and learn how to do this. I mean, when I went to business school, I had to drop out of that business school because it wasn't a business school at all. They wanted to turn me into a secretary. Uh. They, they said, oh, you have to learn how to type X number of words and take shorthand. I said, well, I don't need that for business. And they said, well, of course you do. How do you expect to get a job? I said, I expect to be able to hire someone who knows how to do those things. That's not business to me. <laughs> Very nice. That was what they wanted. So I left that particular section of the it was a special school in uh, Chicago. I went, you're not a business school. You're a secretary school. I didn't come here to be your secretary. <laughs> I, I love it. At age 12, yeah. I wanted to be somebody's secretary. Oh, what a wonderful response. I love it. Would you share a story with me that instigated your passion for cars? Sounds like you've been around cars for a long, long time. But is there a pivotal moment in your life when you really knew that you were a car gal? You know, I don't know that it was anything pivotal. I mean, I've always been fascinated with mechanical things because my family is, is rooted with mechanical stuff. Um, but perhaps sound, if there was any kind of pivoting going on, tuned exhaust notes that resonated uh, with me because I'm deaf. I'm 50% deaf and have been since I've been about eight months old. Oh, wow. That's one of the reasons my singing is the same. I learn differently when I sing. I learned from a vibrational standpoint more so than a sound standpoint. I can get more out of a song when I actually have my hand on the piano than I do hearing it, and I know where to go with the tone. So I think it was the, the doctor's son across the street who had all these little imported cars and had these wonderful little exhaust notes, and I think that's what attracted me over there. And then because it was a little Goldilocks girl in the garage door, they didn't toss me away. Besides, my little tiny hands were bigger than their meaty, you know, smaller than their meaty little paws. So when they would drop something down the carburetor, guess who went and fetched it out? <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Wow. Very, very intriguing, interesting story. Uh, incredible. So Louise... What I'd love to do now is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and crawl under the hood, get our hands a little dirty, certainly something you're not afraid of. Would you share with me a huge challenge or a great failure that you faced along the way in your career? And the most important part of this has to do with how did you overcome that situation and what did you learn from it? Oh, getting fired. Mm, First yes. time I got fired. Um, from, um, it was at Four Wheeler Magazine. I was... 
uh, on staff and helping them do everything with the thing. And he, the, the guy that owned it at the time, was going to sell it to one of the big conglomerates. So, of course, he was knocking down all his labor costs so he could make his books look good. And I had just helped him put this magazine from the number four position to the number one possession in the United States. So I kind of thought I had job security. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. So anyway, the guy that I stole from Hot Rod Magazine as the managing editor came over and became our managing editor. And because his wife was pregnant with their third, second or third child, the publisher said, it's your job to get rid of her now. Ooh. Oh, and, and he told me this. He said, what am I supposed to do? He said, I got the kids on the way. I said, don't worry. Go get me a truck. I'm out of here. And so that was that was it. And the little the little weasel that owned the thing wouldn't come and talk to me himself. And this is a guy that I not only worked for for years, but I used to babysit his kids. Wow, I mean, friends to the point where I would change the diapers on his kids. Yeah, so to not come in that was personally as well as professionally a kick right in the teeth by one mad donkey. <laughs> he he did get his comeuppance. Yeah. Uh, because I went out and I decided, all right, well, what am I going to do? I started, that's where Land Speed Productions started, right after getting fired. Mm. It was not long after that, I mean, maybe 30 days, I had, we had entered two of my investigative pieces into a uh, an international writing competition that was populated by almost any big name of the day back then. And... Uh, I ended up picking two gold awards up for it. And as they announced the name of the publication and the name of the article and who won, this little weasel, cowardly publisher stood up at the table where all of his advertisers were to go get the the award. And I was in the back of the room, of course, because I was no longer part of the national magazine. And I just stood up to get it. And he was taking his congratulations from his advertisers. And I went walking by. And I said, sit down, you little weasel. You didn't do anything to earn this. Ooh. <laughs> and went up there. And, of course, everybody around had known the story. And they all laughed and applauded as I started up. And I'll tell you what, that he understood what he did was very wrong. Yes. At, at that point in time. And uh, he kept trying to call after that to apologize after I had been trying to reach him for a month. And I finally sent word through his wife. I said, Please tell him to stop, and if he comes up to me again at an event, tell him I'm going to spit on him. Oh, gosh. Well. He really made me mad because yeah. now, and, and it was personal. I mean, you only get one chance to do something really ugly like that, and he never should have done that to me or anybody else at the magazine, and it was all for money. Yeah. You know, so many people go through these very challenging times where things like this happen to them, and I would ask you... What's the big lesson here for somebody who's going through this or maybe goes through it in the future? What can you share with them that will help them move forward, get past it as fast as possible, and keep looking down the track? I think I learned that when I learned how to fly. One of the things that your a good instructor will tell you, when you're up in the air, always look for a place to put that plane down if the engine quits. So always give yourself an escape route. Don't put your complete trust into someone because they might let you down and you may not see something. So always give your a place to, a place to land. And I think that's what it taught me. I became more circumspect. Not that I didn't give 100% what necessary, but I always had a way out. Great advice. 
Excellent advice. Yes, always be looking ahead. Be aware. I think it's an awareness of things that are going around you, awareness of opportunities, possibilities, because no matter how comfortable you think you are, it may not be as perfect as you think. So, wow. Well, thanks for sharing a very personal story with us. Let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum. I'd love for you to share a story about an aha moment in your career. It's one of those times when I like to say the headlights come on and illuminate your way for a new idea or a new direction that you have and tell us the steps you took to turn your aha moment into a success. Oh, well, geez. You know what? It's basically the same thing. Remember I told you I won those awards? Yes. It was that article, Vehicle Arrest, which was about federal, at the time, the federal emission controls that were starting to permeate the performance aftermarket in the United States. And for the, the hot rodders, they were they were struck in the head by this because nobody paid any attention to the the P the, the PC valve, you know, the PV valve. Oh, big deal. Positive crankcase ventilation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when they started to, the Fed started to say you had to have these particular add-on devices, it just put performance right in the toilet. Yeah. Well, what I knew about this, I had come from a family in Chicago that was heavily involved with politics, both on the state, regional, and federal level in, in many ways. So for me, it was an everyday thing. It's kind of like Marco Andretti. You know that the kid was going to learn how to drive well. I knew how to negotiate and navigate the political uh, spectrum as well as the governmental and legislation work. I just knew how it worked. So when these controls came down and the guys at the magazines were at, at odds on how to deal with it, it was easy. I went, oh, oh, I know how to deal with this. So I used my contacts and my understanding. And essentially, I led the automotive journalism crowd back then and SEMA to helping control their own destiny in the high-performance world to where they weren't fighting with the feds. They actually could work with them. And that was, that was something where I realized that it had to happen not just with the enthusiasts, with their cars, but it had to happen also with uh, the organizing bodies such as uh, SEMA as well as the high-performance parts manufacturer. And one guy that jumped onto this in a big way was Vic Edelbrock. That's how Vic Edelbrock and I became friends and professional uh, colleagues because we recognized the same situation. And Edelbrock was one of the first companies to acquire their California Air Resources Board exemption number, which was damn near impossible for a, a high-performance person. It, it was kind of like, you know, if you had a motorcycle, you had to be a, a, a dirty person, you know, back then. Sure. Uh, any hot rodder had a bad reputation. But that was probably the aha moment because from a journalistic standpoint, it moved me out of one publication. Back then, if you worked for Hot Rod or wrote for them, you didn't work for Popular Hot Rodding. Uh, and if you worked for Popular Hot Rodding, you didn't go over to Street Rodder. There were three main publishing groups. Well, when this federal emission control hit, it hit everybody in the teeth right away. Well, mm -hmm. I knew and I had the contacts and nobody had the contacts. So I was able to write for all three publishing companies pretty much on a monthly basis that had never been done before. And they, and they weren't mad at me. Oh my gosh, well, if you write for him, you can't write for them. So we kind of, that was something that I broke open. It was the first time that that had happened. Wow. Really fascinating. Just absolutely 
Incredible. I love it. How about proudest moments in your career? Is there one in particular that stands out for you? I would assume you've had many. Two. One from, because I'm not just a, a writer, I'm also, I've also always been a racer. I've always been somewhat into high performance and driving well. One was affecting the positive change on a federal level for the leaded gas phase out where I worked with the Secretary of Energy and the Secretary of Transportation, as well as the emission controls that we talked about and suspension level uh, legislation. That was big wow. because that affected hundreds and thousands of people that I will never meet, but on a positive way. And the second one, man, it's got to be out at the Bonneville Salt Flats with Don Vesco when we set the world land speed record at 458 miles an hour. And I'm here to tell you at this moment in time talking to you, we still currently own that record. I hope we lose it this year to someone better. But until that day comes, we own it. Holy cow, man. Wow. Amazing. Just incredible. You are moving fast. <laughs> That's so cool. Congratulations. You're moving faster. Fast, yes. <laughs> yes. Let's have a little fun here. I'd love for you to share with me your first really special vehicle and a memory that you have about that car. Oh, well, got to be Daddy's Mercury Monterey. Ooh. Baby blue and cream with the ribbon speedometer and the push-button transmission. Let me tell you something. When you learn how to steal a car, you better know how that works. <laughs> what year was that car? 1957. 57. And Dad bought it brand new, but of course, because he had a family, he didn't buy very much brand new, but that was big, brand new. I started to drive that car in 1969 or 70. 70. Okay. 1970. And it was still looked as Joe, it had just come off the showroom floor. Wow. Oh, yeah. And that was, I mean, when you, when that thing went to life, you couldn't really steal it while he was home or when the, the <laughs> bed were home. Because when that sucker roared to life, it was like the MGM roaring lion. Everybody knew that, oh, size taking the Merc out. Yeah. Okay. Now, there's got to be one crazy story you could share with us about driving that car. Oh, yeah. How about the day we got caught? <laughs> uh, yes. I was waiting so, for that. I lived on the south side of Chicago on 56th and Winchester, the back of the yards, okay? Mm -hmm. One block over was Garfield Boulevard, 55th Street. Garfield Boulevard was where cars could go, but trucks could not. Father owned a construction company. Father's day car was a truck. Daddy could not go on the boulevard. So we knew that, oh, and by the way, when we'd steal it, we'd have to push it down the alley toward the school and start it up down there so nobody would hear it. <laughs> and you know how many girls it takes to push a 57 Mercury Monterey? Uh, how many? Four. Four, okay. <laughs> Four. That's a heavy car. Yeah. So we would take this thing down and go quick like a bunny out to the boulevard because Dad wouldn't catch us. Well, what us dumb little idiots did not know is that you could take a pickup truck on the boulevard if you were working at a house on the boulevard. Mm. So here we are carrying on with our soda pops. And, you know, we're 17 years old. And, of course, we were had to have our little cigarettes. I don't smoke now. But at the time, cigarettes was against the establishment. So, therefore, we had to use them. <laughs> and off we were. We were driving the windows are down, the arms are out, the cigarettes in our hand, and we're just the coolest thing in this car, right? Uh -huh. And here comes Dad alongside, and he drives up alongside, and he says, take my car home. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, that's the closest thing I've ever come to heart heart attack. 
Oh, goodness. Hey, that's it. We're going to the... Back to the garage. We're going to the... To the we're going to the the, the, the convent now. Or, yeah. Or we're going to the police station. That must have been a long wait for dad to come home that night. Oh, he... Oh, just... No, it wasn't that far away, but... Yeah. Also, we went with the car, and my sister and I were both in the car, and I thought we were both going to die. <laughs> no, he went right to the filing cabinet in his office. He pulled out, at that time, you had these things, he pulled out our passbooks for our savings account. And it was still in the afternoon, and down we went to the insurance agent, which, of course, was a friend of his. He said, how much for blah, 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 uh, the insurance, to put these two on? put us on the insurance, then went down to the bank, and all of our money that was necessary to put us on the insurance was taken out of our bank accounts. Wow, good lesson there. Yeah. Let me tell you, I mean, when my passbook had that that negative put next to it, got my attention. Ah, yeah. And he said, if you want to play, you got to pay. Got to, yeah, got to pay. Love it, love it. What a great dad. Taught you a great lesson you still remember today. Is there a vehicle that you've sold that you really wish you could have back in your garage? That very same car. That car, yeah. Kind of thought that was it. <laughs> Wonderful. Oh, yeah. I mean, the mountains of road trips up to Wisconsin. My dad would go. When he went fishing, he didn't go just to a resort type of thing. We would go on asphalt roads, then on to gravel roads, then on dirt roads, and then there really would be something with forage, and that car would go there because it would take the big outboard motor, and then you would think that's where he's going to fish. Oh, no. Then we got left at that lake resort, and the plane would come in and fetch my father, and off he would go to some place where cars couldn't go, and you could go fishing. Wow. Uh, quite adventurous. The car was so big, we could curl up in the footwell of the back seat and go to sleep, and then when we would go to White Castles for the hamburgers, because those were really cool hamburgers for us, <laughs> the back tray of the back window well there was our dining room table. Yeah. Oh, great memories. I love it. I love it. How about current projects? Is there something you're working on today that really has you excited and fired up? That's probably twofold. Last year, I took over as the chief judge for the International Automotive Media Competition, uh, this is different from any other contest in that it's not a, a one, two, three thing. You might have three entries, but that doesn't mean you'll have first, second, third. It's charged against a standard, an extremely high standard. And if it it measures up, it could have a gold, silver, or bronze award. Um, and where you think of like 75 as passing, that doesn't even get you an award in this competition because we're only looking for the absolute excellence in automotive uh, media journalism, whether that be writing, photography, graphic design, radio work, podcast, internet, television, uh, documentary, film, anything that has to do with automotive journalism. And I have a judging panel of very distinguished uh, gentlemen and gals that help me out with this, and they judge it on that standard. And the idea is that if it's a good thing, you can give it an add a girl or add a boy. But if it's a bad thing and you beat the daylights out of it, they are not just asked, they are required to give comments about the shortcomings so that, in fact, an entrant can learn by their mistakes and do better the next time and maybe learn they, how they can earn a bronze and, or if they have a bronze to move up to a, a silver or a gold. And the whole point of this 
is to float the automotive journalism boat just a little bit higher so that we improve the breed, uh, so to speak. Wow. So that's one thing that I really like. I'm working on that now. Uh, and then I'm working on my second book about the Bonneville Salt Flats that's covering the first century of speed from 1914 to 2014. And I'm under contract with the University of Utah Press to produce this. Now, if you've never worked for a university, boys and girls, let me let me give you a heads up on this. Because you only want to do one of these suckers in your lifetime. <laughs> I am um, up to, I have 263,000 words. I have placed 550 photographs into this manuscript so far. I am up to 1970. Ooh, that's going to be a big book. That's what I said to them. And, I, you know, it's going to be like the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah. But I asked them, what's the word count? What do you do? How, I've never done a university book. Remember, we're talking about a kid that come out of the streets of Chicago. That's how I run my business. <laughs> and she said, in all seriousness, well, Louise, we find with our scholars that anything more than 500,000 words gets to be a bit boring. Oh, my goodness. Wow. What an adventure. <laughs> Maybe she needs to go out to Bonneville and go for a little ride. I don't know, but she's the, one of the chief editors over there, and they're one of the best, re, the best respected university presses, not only in the country, but in the world. So they know what they're talking about. I guess so. Wow. Well, you better get back to work. <laughs> I was working on it when we did this. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well. As I said when you called, I appreciate you taking some time out to uh, join me today, very much so. But I can't wait to see this publication. Oh, my goodness. Sounds incredible. Now, here's a very introspective question for you. I cannot wait to hear how you answer this question. If Louise was a car, what kind of car would she be and why? Oh, that's easy. The Batmobile. The Batmobile. You're the first Batmobile on the show. Okay. You know why? Because a girl needs a powerful, obedient car when on a mission, and she should look good while she's doing it. <laughs> I love it. That's cool. Very nice. Very nice. I got to spend a day with Batmobile number three and the Adam West, the classic Batman. And I'll tell you, that was like a dream come true for a guy like me who actually built the first Batman model when it came out, watched Batman on TV in the 60s. And I'll tell you, not only was the car pretty cool, but Adam West is an amazingly nice person. He is. I've met him, too. Yes. He is a good guy. Yeah, very good guy. So, very cool. Louise is the Batmobile. I love it. There you go. Well, Louise, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah sponsor. Have you turned your key and heard that dreaded tick, 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 tick because of a dead battery? No worries. I've got the NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in your glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that will start a dead battery in your car, boat, truck, or RV. It packs a whopping 12-volt, 400-amp starting power and can start up to 20 dead batteries on a single charge. Plus, it has built-in spark-proof technology 
with reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart your vehicle. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are solid copper for maximum conductivity, and there's a built-in ultra-bright dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS emergency strobe. It's easily rechargeable with a USB outlet, and you can charge your smartphone or tablet while you're on the road. Works on any 12-volt lead-acid battery. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, your battery care source since 1914. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. All right, Louise, we're entering the last lap, and this is where I'm going to fire off a series of questions, and you're going to give our listeners some really quick blips of the throttle answers. So you ready? Go. What is the best automotive advice you've ever received? From Dee Batchelor and Denise McCuglidge. From Dean, it came, when you get a test car, wash it yourself. Don't take it to the car wash. I went, why? Because you'll learn more about the car by washing it than you will driving it. Yes. He was right. And Denise, she taught me, well, we, you wanted something short and quick. That ain't going to happen. Because for years, Denise taught me all kinds of little tricks on how to drive. Yes, what a wonderful woman. I'm so fortunate to have had her as a guest on this show. Obviously, you know you're fortunate to have had her in your life as well. And uh, oh my gosh, yeah, wonderful. You know that comment about washing cars? Whenever I've bought a car in my past, I've always asked them, I want to take it home and wash it. And they look at me like, what? If I don't enjoy washing a vehicle, I'm not going to enjoy owning that vehicle. Good point. Yeah. Would you share one of your personal habits that you believe has contributed to your success? It has to be veracity and details <laughs> yes. to, never, to never short shift the reader and the viewer. I, I don't know if we can say that, but I'm going to say it. I can piss off a, an editor with no problem, but I never want to do that to my readers and my viewers. Ah, oh, great advice. Don't short shift the readers. I'm going to coin that one. I love it. <laughs> That's great. Do you have a resource that you think the Car Show listeners would really enjoy? Oh, go to my website. You can see all the crazy nonsense I've done. <laughs> it's a great website, too. Lots of fun. How about a book? Is there one book you think the Cars Yow listeners would really enjoy reading? Bonneville Soft Self-serving. The reason being, these are ordinary people doing amazingly wonderful, extraordinary things. It is the last vestige of the American Wild West. Only all the ponies are under the hood. Uh, hey, very well said. And I'll remind our listeners, we have a special place on the Cars Yeah website under Guest Recommended Books. We'll make sure this book and all the guests who've been on the shows, their favorite choices for books are listed there with links on how to get those. And you can find all these links at carsyeah.com slash Louise. Know it. And Louise's last name is spelled N-O-E-T-H. Louise, we're up to the checkered flag. And this last question can be a real doozy. If you could only have one collector car in your garage, and it could be a collector race car if you want, Bonneville, Salt Flat Racer, whatever you'd like, I'll buy it for you today. Money's no object. What would that one vehicle be and why? Oh, easy. Dino 246 GT. Ooh. Well, it's a Goldilocks car that fits me in my spirit, and it would drive daintily around the roads of Lake Como. Oh, gosh. I'll tell you something funny. I send out an email to my subscribers every Friday outlining the guests that have been on that week with links back to their shows. And today's, this is so appropriate, today's email had that car as the eye candy on that email. Yeah, yeah. 
TJ Graywall, who's been on my guest as a photographer and an artist, took a beautiful picture of one of those. And it's uh, so funny that you mentioned that. And I love those vehicles, too. The first Ferrari I ever drove. I know they didn't put the word Ferrari on that car, but it is a Ferrari. Mm-hmm. Uh, was one of those vehicles. And it was actually originally owned by Cher. another very strong lady in the world that's for sure so very cool those are beautiful cars oh and unfortunately for me should have bought one back when because they become just unobtainium price-wise very expensive well louise you've taken me on a great ride today and i've really enjoyed your stories you are so much fun to hang around with i want to thank you for sharing your amazing journey with the listeners could you give us one parting piece of guidance before you drive off into the sunset in that dino What you do for others lasts longer, stays stronger than anything you'll ever do for yourself. Ah, Wonderful. Great advice. What is the best way for our listeners to learn more about you and your business? Go to the website, I think. And the website is? Uh, www.landspeedproductions.biz. Yes, very cool. We'll make sure that's listed on her show notes page, and you can find that at carsyad.com. Just put Louise, L-O-U-I-E. S-E in the search box and her show notes page will pop right up. Thank you, Lise, for being so generous with your time and expertise today and for sharing your experiences with me and the listeners. It's been so much fun. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. Bye, Mark. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!